listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Today, we are really excited to be joined by, by Dave, or as many of you know him, the mobile game doctor. Um, hey. <laughs> great to be here. I'm super excited. Dave, tell us your story. How did you get into gaming? I, I know you've been doing this for a while, but you know what brought you into this world in the first place? Well, uh, I was born a young child. I was born literally before there were video games. But from the time I was a young child, I was always kind of obsessed with games. I was that little kid who wouldn't let his parents go to bed without one more game of gin rummy, you know. Uh, always looked forward to those family games of Monopoly. Grew up loving board games and card games. And that was a big feature of my life, you know, throughout my youth and on into college. After college, I actually went on, had a nice uh, kind of five-year career in various parts of the nonprofit world. I went through this really interesting experience where I had a couple of opportunities to really rise in the organizations and take on more responsibility. And I just couldn't get excited about it. So I kind of realized that a career where you can't get excited about growth <laughs> is probably not a great track. Yeah. Um, so I took a step back and I thought about, you know, what do I really love doing? You know, what do I, what am I passionate about? And I said, I'm passionate about board games. So in 1990, I sort of looked around and said, okay, how do you make a living in, uh, in board games in San Francisco in 1990? And, uh, the answer was, you don't. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, you know, what else do I love? I love computers. I love computer games. And it turned out that there actually were some opportunities out there. Uh, so I went out banging on doors, uh, fresh out of my nonprofit career for about six months. Um, had a couple of near misses with some gaming companies. And then actually wound up landing a job with a non-game software startup, a utility software startup. So I came in, uh, started and ran their tech support group, uh, then ran their QA group for a while. And then when that startup fell apart a few years later in 1994, I went to the learning company as a QA lead and started my mm -hmm. career in games there and, and never looked back. Awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, you've got a lot of experience, you know, you went to EA and Zynga and Playdom and, uh, and you actually started your own company with GameHound, right? Yeah. GameHound, interestingly, was a step into something game adjacent for me. So this was in 2013. Mm -hmm. um, I had just been working at a venture funded startup building HTML5 implementations of uh, kind of digital board games. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that company was ahead of its time and, and uh, very ambitious. Uh, so when that fell apart, uh, I and a friend from Playdom decided that we wanted to try and build um, a mobile game discovery app. You know, what we saw, we had a lot of friends in the developer community that were really struggling to break through and get noticed in a world that was dominated by paid user acquisition and by, um, you know, the editorial teams at the platform with very few other opportunities to reach users. Uh, so we actually set out to build something that was more or less Pandora for mobile games. 
um, specifically for uh, iOS games. Um, and we actually, you know, with with no budget, just kind of working uh, me in the Bay Area, my friend uh, Yaroslav over in Moscow, mm-hmm. uh, and a few of his friends uh, scattered around uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, managed to build a pretty cool little piece of tech that uh, used some metadata that we got from a company called EDAR, um, and some smart algorithms to, you know, once users told us a little bit about what they liked, to make really good game recommendations for things they were going to like. Unfortunately, our timing was pretty off. So by the time we were sort of getting into the Apple approval queue, it was at a moment where Apple was coming down really hard on recommendation apps because there had been some bad actors in the ecosystem. Um, and so we sort of uh, jumped through a series of hoops and then finally got to one that we could not uh, surpass. Uh, and we've been coding a native iOS app. So we kind of had a hard decision to make at that point, um, which was, do we uh, kind of, you know, um, gird our loins and and try and go after this on Android and just forget about iOS and restart development from scratch, right? Yeah. Or at least front-end development. Um, or, you know, do we just kind of say, well, you know, that was a, a really good learning experience and move on. Um, and as we were sort of weighing that, um, I actually got a Skype message out of the blue that led me to found Mobile Game Doctor, uh, where a friend of mine who was running a team over at Wuga in Berlin um, asked me if I would be willing to come to Germany and, you know, spend a few months over there and help get uh, a prototype off the ground. Mm. Uh, and so uh, I took him up on it. And, you know, six years later, that's turned into a really fun little consulting company that I've enjoyed running since uh, you know 2014. Yeah, that's awesome. And you even took my next question, I was going to say, and that led us to Mobile Game Doctor. So uh, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) You read my mind. Um, Yeah. So Mobile Game Doctor initially was kind of me uh, jumping on planes and and sort of firefighting uh, various projects, (laughs) either from uh, my home in the Bay Area or, you know, I spent, uh, you know, 50% time in Berlin for about a year and a half working on various projects for Wuga spent some time in India working with a team there and so on. Um, in the beginning, it was just kind of me solving problems and then demand sort of grew to the point where I wound up building up uh, a team uh, of folks that, you know, had different skill sets, um, different expertise, right, that I could sort of really custom fit to different client projects. Mm-hmm. Um, we started off really focused on game design for free-to-play mobile, game design, monetization, economy design, kind of the the, the whole gamut of design. Um, and since then, just in response to customer demand, we've also added product management consulting, uh, growth marketing consulting. Uh, we do a lot of monetization work. We do a lot of economy design. Um, we're really focused on sort of games as a service and free-to-play games. Um, the vast bulk of our business is in mobile, although we're actually having some real fun with some companies in PC and console that are really interested in moving to that mm-hmm. games as a service model where we're sort of coming in and 
teaching those teams how to operate and helping them to design the pieces of their games that will make them most successful in free to play. That's really cool. So, you know, you, as you kind of went from that transition of, you know, kind of the, the one person show to building a team, you know, what did that look like? I, I, I often like to ask these questions around hiring because I find like getting the right people is one of the biggest challenges. So, you know, what do you look for in people to kind of bring onto your team, you know, skills, personality, et cetera? So we are still a relatively small company. Um, so I think at the moment we have about 15 team members, um, mm-hmm. most of whom are contractors. Um, and most of whom are, you know, really from first degree network with a few from second degree network. So these are mm-hmm. folks that I've worked with in the past whose capacities I understand. Um, I started Mobile Game Doctor as a company, as a distributed company, right? I was working out of my living room. Uh, the first team member I brought on uh, was actually in Austin, Texas. So I realized I had a few... Um, very specific criteria for hiring given the nature of the business, both distributed and sort of uh, consulting slash expertise focused, right? So because it was expertise focused, um, I put a strong emphasis on skill set, right? On technical capability and hard skills. Um, If I'm going to charge people consulting rates to apply resources to their projects, those resources need to be able to justify those rates. Um, and, you know, but they aren't cheap, right? Yeah. Um, on a per hour basis, hiring a consultant costs a lot more than hiring an employee. Mm-hmm. But consultants are experienced, knowledgeable experts that can come in and sort of um, solve problems quickly and efficiently. Yeah. Um, because the company was started as a distributed company and has always been a distributed company, right? So we've, we've never had a traditional office. Um, I had a desk in a co-working space for a while pre-pandemic, um, <laughs> and I now have a desk in a spare bedroom. So, um, but uh, I really needed folks with a high level of integrity and personal responsibility, mm. uh, folks that I could trust without my being able, you know, without me looking over their shoulders who would kind of consistently execute, right? Take ownership of that, understand deadlines, manage tasks, and move the work forward very independently. Um, As the company has grown, um, one of the things that folks who sort of join the team of consultants at Mobile Game Doctor tend to really like. Um, often consultants work alone. It can be very lonely. It's mm-hmm. hard to find people to bounce stuff off of. Um, so we have a really vibrant, lively Slack community mm. um, for our uh, current team members um, and a few select alumni who remain under NDA. Mm. Um, so I'm looking for people that can, you know, sort of um, play nicely on Slack. Right. Um, Who are good collaborators who are willing to engage with other people's problems and kind of be Mm -hmm. um, supportive and helpful as we all kind of work together to crack these really difficult, creative challenges. Yeah. 
Um, and honestly, who can collaborate efficiently with each other on projects where I'm not involved in a, a hands-on way, right? Those folks need to be able to communicate, to collaborate, because at times we'll need somebody who's really strong on UX, somebody else who's really strong on systems, someone else who's just kind of a monster on spreadsheet to build the team we need for a client project. Mm. Um, so I need good collaborators. And honestly, uh, although we have been uh, spinning up a game development division over the last couple of years and, you know, uh, delivered our first project earlier this year for Eastside Games, which is great. When we're on a consulting project or even when we're on a co-development project like that, we are always um, working very closely with members of other companies, mm -hmm. right? So I need folks who can really play nice in that context. On a consulting project, we are solving a client problem. Yep. Um, on co-development projects, we are generally partnering with uh, a publisher who's financing the project and handling uh, distribution and marketing, although we do help some of our publishers on the, the marketing side. And also partnering with uh, work for hire devs that bring their sort of engineering and art skills to the party, mm. right? Um, so yeah, playing nicely is super important. Um, in general, for folks that I think have um, high skills, I'm generally kind of willing to give people a tryout mm. and you know see how they sort of uh, sink or float while I sort of keep them contained in a corner on a solo <laughs> project. Um, so um, you know, I am fond of that kind of experimentation to see how people play out. But I'm also very transparent about that as I bring new team members on, right? To say, let's try this as an experiment. Uh, it's working out, that's great, we'll do more. And if it's not, okay, right? It's like you've got a data-driven nature, you know, coming from games where it's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll try the experiment, see if it works. <laughs> well, I mean, even before the era of free-to-play games, um, certainly, being a game designer, which I, I've been a designer, I've been a producer, I've been a studio head, right? I've always worked on that sort of development side of things. One of the things that you learn is that your intuition is both extremely critical and extremely untrustworthy, right? <laughs> so, you know, just in terms of what is going to make a game fun, what's really going to work there, you know, you apply all of your information and your learning to sort of say, yeah, okay, here's the next thing we should try. And then, you know, sometimes it works. <laughs> sometimes it just is awful. Right. So, yeah. uh, Do you remember a time when you were sure that your intuition on something was right and it ended up being totally wrong? Um, yeah. And sometimes you get really complex mixed signals. So uh, recently, you know, uh, I was working on a, a game where um, we we're seeing a lot of negative feedback and reviews about sort of levels being overlong and grindy. Mm -hmm. So we went back through and did a tuning pass where we cut, you know, 33 to 50% off the length of, you know, most of the, the levels in the mid game, mm -hmm. right? Um, and ran it in a split test and really... Not a lot of difference. Uh, you know, it, it. we didn't get a worse response when we cut that, but, you know, it 
think was perhaps um, masking some other stuff that bothered users or, you know, we were dealing with a vocal minority, but yeah, it really mm. didn't do anything. <laughs> um, dealing with another interesting problem on a game right now where uh, we did uh, kind of a, uh, a split test around the uh, new user experience. Um, mostly around the kind of narrative and presentation of it as opposed to the mechanics of it. But the impact on paid users in terms of retention monetization has been really positive. Mm. And the impact on organic users has been kind of negative, right? Which led to a couple of interesting thoughts, right? So one is, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make – the decision that's best for the business. So you want to look at the quality and prevalence of those two traffic sources, mm-hmm. right? So who's actually spending money in the game and retaining over the long term? Cause you want to cater to those folks. And, but you also want to look at who's more numerous or getting more organics or more paid on this game. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that it really led me to think about is, you know, could we improve our, uh, our ASO, to make those organics look more like the paid users? Could we do more with ASO um, just to make it clearer to users what they are getting into, mm. right? Um, and so, yeah, we're kind of working on that now to say, look, what what can we tune here to try and make our organic user stream look more like our acquired user stream? That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, I have heard of, you know, some people when they encounter a scenario like that, where it's like, okay, well, we ran this A-B test Mm -hmm. and this part of A worked well for like these users and this part of B worked well for like this other group of users. Have you ever tried to do something where it's like, can we earlier segment such that this user group gets these and this new user group gets this other experiment? Or is that something where now you're just adding a lot of complexity and stuff to your game that you have to manage, you know, two different first time user experiences or something like that? Yeah. So it's the kind of thing that I think you have to be very cautious about. So on some of our split tests, we've seen really um, interesting splits across platforms, for instance, right? So it would be possible to maintain, say, you know, one user flow or one game balance for Android players and another for iOS players. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is um, every time you do that, you're now effectively maintaining two games. And every time you do it after that, now you're maintaining four games and then eight games. And so at a certain point, the potential for error in, you know, maintaining those starts to really exceed the benefit that you're getting from kind of maintaining those separate balances or user flows or code bases, right? So it's the sort of thing that I would do only if there were really business critical results Mm -hmm. coming out of, uh, coming out of something. But yeah, uh, we sort of discussed and debated that with various clients. And my general answer is like, no, unless it's kind of earth shattering. Yeah. 
I know um, I've seen but, I've seen people do that across servers. So like the Asian server versus the US server or something like that might be, you know, very different, but effectively they're separate games that you're maintaining then. Yeah, exactly. So the question is how many games are you ready to maintain? <laughs> um, and you know, honestly, one of the things that is true, like look, I, I'd love to work with more teams at, you know, um EA and Ubi and, and Warner. Um, one of the things that works really well for uh, for us with a lot of smaller teams is there are really smart people with decades of experience running around EA and Warner, right? So one of the one of the things we really talk about when we talk about mobile game doctor is our average level of industry experience and game design experience uh, is you know, over 20 years. Wow. Uh, pretty much everybody has at least a decade in free to play. I think we might have one or two folks like our lead level designers, like eight years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you are um, EA or, you know, you're, you're king, you can afford to have a number of people like that running around. Um, so a lot of our customers are sort of more uh, mid-sized to small mm. developers. Uh, although we actually have done projects with some very, very large developers and had some good <laughs> results there. Um, so I don't want to kind of dismiss that or say it's impossible, but uh, the bulk of our business comes from smaller, scrappier teams. Yeah, makes sense. That's cool. What kind of, you know, I feel like 2020 has been kind of a crazy year, election aside and, you know, COVID and stuff. Um, Have you noticed any different trends on the types of projects that you're working on, say, in 2020 than 2019? So, uh, 2020, um, despite the fact that it has been incredibly disruptive to everybody's lives, hasn't really been disruptive to our business, uh, which is nice, right? That's great, yeah. Um, so we were pretty concerned, actually, you know, uh, GDC, the Game Developers Conference, which happens in San Francisco in March of every year, is really like a big focus for marketing for us, right? Yep. And then we do a lot of small conference, smaller conferences as well, uh, mostly North American, but, you know, Things like um, Pocket Gamer or Games Forum uh, or Game Daily Connect, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, I was set to um, speak at GDC. We had a big marketing push geared up, and uh, you know, GDC was scheduled for a few days after the Bay Area went into COVID lockdown. Mm-hmm. So we kind of said. How's this going to affect us? Like we're losing this BD opportunity. Um, you know, it turns out, um, and you know, uh, we were we were worried for a while, but I think within the first couple of months of lockdown, we figured out um, how to work the digital conference uh, circuit pretty effectively, um, as well as sort of building up our content marketing and so on. So it's really helped us to uh, find a lot of new customers and for a lot of new customers to find us. Um, Yeah, I think we've kind of used the 
absence of that conference marketing opportunity that we've historically exploited as a real prod for us to get better at marketing ourselves in other ways. Yeah. Um, in terms of operations, um, we have always been a distributed company that relies heavily on sort of cloud-based uh, communication and file sharing. So that fit right in. Um, we did have one of our team members uh, contract COVID. So he was out of action for a few weeks, but thankfully is fully recovered. That's great. Um, yeah. Uh, although it certainly is, is one of those sobering things, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, believe it or not, I actually had, uh, literally a next door neighbor, uh, get hospitalized with COVID. Thank God he's fine. Um, but yeah, for us, um, it, you know, forced us to grow in some interesting ways. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of really happy it's gone that way. Um, that said, I personally am very ready for 2020 to be over. So if I could just take a nap after this and, you know, wake up on January 1st, uh, I wouldn't be terribly unhappy. And I would have saved on my holiday gift budget as well. So, you know. That's <laughs> yeah, I think I'm just ready for the election to be over. This is like, <laughs> how, many, how many days are we waiting here? <laughs> yeah, um, certainly the... The analysts that I uh, that I track online suggest that we won't have to wait that much longer. <laughs> but you know, as uh, the immortal Tom Petty said, right, the waiting is the hardest part. Uh, indeed, I think we're almost there, though. So, <laughs> yeah, for folks listening, we're actually recording this on the the Friday after the election, and yep. as of as of Tuesday, it's still not quite official, but very close. Yeah. So, you know, tell me about the the types of projects you guys have been working on. Like, is it still really focused on like game design or monetization design or like helping with so, live ops flows? You know, what is your yeah, I mean, project? A variety of stuff. Um, so um, one long-term project that we've been working on is for a partner with a, a licensed idle game. Um which is, uh, you know, there we have been sort of owning the economy. We've done a full game rebalance. We've also been doing some system and feature design to enable us to sort of um, push that a little further. Um, we have another kind of level-based idle game um, from a different publisher that they wanted to do some experiments with narrative in, so we brought our narrative design team in to, to take care of that. Uh, we actually have a large Asian publisher um, that has asked us to come in and do uh, design audits. So do a full kind of detailed teardown with actionable recommendations for improvements on three of their mid-core games. Um, let's see, what are some of the other interesting bits we're working on? We are doing growth marketing for three soft launch games. Uh, and then we're also assisting one of our publishing partners with creative and targeting experimentation uh, for a game that we built for them. We are talking to a language learning app. So this is something that we're hoping to work on soon um, about sort of um, figuring out how to better monetize their subscription service. Mm, that's a, that's a fun one. <laughs> Yeah. So one thing you mentioned was growth marketing, you know, or yeah. helping them with, but like, what does that mean in the context of gaming? 
Uh, so, you know, in general, in free-to-play games, um, yep. it is ultimately a business that is largely about user acquisition arbitrage, right? Yep. So mm. it's, it's literally about picking up four-cent nickels. <laughs> yes. Uh, so on the marketing side, um, we focus on, you know, working with companies that have games that um, aren't yet scaled up. They're in soft launch or they've been marketed pretty conservatively um, where we try to work uh, cost effectively to build out um, a variety of creatives, test out a variety of targeting strategies for user acquisition um, to find um, scalable strategies where you can acquire a bunch of users profitably. Um, we are not a user acquisition agency in the way that, um, you know, Yellowhead or Consumer Acquisition or Neon Pluto are. Um, so in general, when one of our customers wants to start spending a million or more per month on user acquisition, uh, we will sort of hand them off to one of those agencies. Mm. Um, but when we do that handoff, we're able to really articulate here's the targeting that's worked, here's the creative that's worked, so that they can scale up only the profitable bits and not waste money, you know, at mm. large scale on kind of um, trying to figure out what that stuff is. Um, we also structure our contracts a little differently from most of those large agencies. So our incentives are really to sort of um, find stuff that works and we try to do that as quickly and efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. um, whereas um, many agencies, not all, but many um, mostly have incentives to have their customers spend more. Mm. Right. And we don't, we don't want to be in that business of trying to get people to spend money. We want people to get their games growing profitably. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. So, you know, if folks are thinking of like, okay, my soft launch metrics seem to be working, like how can I grow my game now? You might be a good kind of stepping stone on the way to fully scaling it up if you're not exactly sure how to do that or, you know, exactly. you're, a, you're a small team and you don't have a bunch of, you know, UA folks that have experience doing that. Exactly. So um, my COO, David Nixon, who is... Uh, the former vice president of publishing at Wooga uh, heads that side of the business. Um, and he has his former head of user acquisition from Wooga. We have uh, a product marketer from Glue, uh, formerly from Glue, right? Um, who lead most of the campaigns over there. We have some great freelance graphic artists we work with to, you know, get the creatives built. Um, and the work that they're doing has, has yielded some very real results for multiple customers. So that's pretty cool. Have yeah. you been able to find any channels outside of Google or Facebook that actually work? Um, so that would be a better question for David and his <laughs> team. But in our experience, those are, you know, those are the first channels you want to be working. Right. So the idea that you're going to kind of start off by working with, you know, Unity or Vungle or, you know, uh, whatever, you know, kind of other smaller network cross install, you know, as your core. Um, generally, we're more interested in fo focusing on Facebook first, 
Google second. And then once we feel like we've kind of got those optimized, then looking at some of the other networks. Mm. Yeah, I know I've, I've heard from some folks that VCs, as they're starting to look at gaming companies, are often asking the question of like, what are your, your channels and are they profitable? And have you been able to expand outside of Google and Facebook? And I know some of them are not interested if you can't. So, But I, I feel like it's a very difficult challenge to do, especially with how good Google and Facebook are at finding the right users. For sure. Although I will say, um, particularly on Facebook, it's been a difficult environment for the last few months, right? Because there's been tremendous, tremendous volume of spending on political advertising through that channel, mm. right? Which has driven up CPMs everywhere. And now we're sliding right from there. We're going to get like a two-week break, maybe. And then, boom, we're sliding right into the holiday escalation, uh, right? Where all the e-commerce, well, so, and I have heard, by the way, that the the holiday season escalation is already on this year now that the election wave has passed because, you know, everyone has concluded probably rightly that with COVID in place, um, online shopping is going to be up significantly and in-person shopping is going to be down significantly for gifts, so all the e-commerce marketers are trying to get out in front of that, you know, pre-Black Friday wave. <laughs> so wow. yeah, if you if you got tired of the political ad inundation, <laughs> get ready for the online shopping ad inundation because it's coming your way. Get your shopping ads on, yeah. You gotta get you gotta get those contextual ones for like really good looking food that like you know pop up you know right before dinner time and you're like oh <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, there are there are other interesting things that folks are doing, right? Um, in terms of you know uh, influencer marketing, right? Uh, working with streamers and so on. Um, in my experience, those things tend to work um, a bit better in the kind of um, PC world than they do on mobile. It's not to say they don't have an impact on mobile, but um, it's it's much stronger on the PC side of things. Um, and one of the things that I have heard from a number of friends who are kind of more living in that world is that the performance, their experience with the performance of paid influencer marketing is eh, but the organic influencer marketing they get, right? The people who are playing their game because they love their game and they're streaming the game because they're having so much fun with it does really, really well. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, and I will say, look, um, I spent a lot of time talking about retention, monetization, engagement, how do we, you know, deal with session structure? How do we get the best merchandise in the game? You know, you need to make a fun game. You need to make a good game. You need to make something that people enjoy playing, right? And, uh, you know, that's what I learned early in my career, right? Is if it's not a good game, you can put all the dressing around it that you want and uh, still doesn't matter. Or as I... Uh, <laughs> I used to tell my friends uh, and occasionally get big arguments out of them, out of them, uh, you know, no game, no meta game. Right? <laughs> that's, that's totally fair. So, you know, thinking about games, mm -hmm. let's say Dave, all right, 
starting in 2020, I want to build a game. And, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a fan of Archero and I like that hybrid casual style game, but um, I I really like wizards. So maybe I want to make a a wizard version of Archero and stuff. Um, How would I, you know, go about starting? Like if you were to, you know, be given a game like that to co-develop, like what are the the first kind of few steps you would go through for someone thinking about making a, a game? What are the right things to do, I guess? Well, so first of all, let me, um, you know, let me challenge the assumption that that's a good idea. Um, so, you know, one of the first things I think when people are playing around with game concepts, right, is um, particularly when you're saying, look, I want to do something that really resembles a popular game that lots of people have played, right? Mm-hmm. The first question is going to be, what is going to be so notable and different about your game that it's going to want to make people play that instead, right? Mm-hmm. And the number of folks who are fans of Wizards that, you know, wouldn't respond to Archero is probably... Pretty small, in my opinion, but it's a question you can research. Yeah, um, I mean, I can actually answer that. I think the meta, at least when I played Archero back in the day, was was pretty weak in the fact that um, the way that you grind your items is you kind of like hold on to one really powerful item, and the rest of the stuff that you get and the chests and the rewards that you get, they don't really add to it too much. So I think after a certain cliff, like why would I spend money? And I think sure. you could break a lot of those, those meta things. It seems like meta was added really quickly in the last like month for Archero. So in the nineties, I actually worked in, you know, boxed software <laughs> before I, I jumped to Pogo in 2000 and started working online and then, you know, on Facebook and on mobile. And we, we had a saying there, which is, um, if it can't go on the box, it shouldn't go in the box. So how are you going to convey that in a bullet point in a way that a player is going to care about? That's a good question. I don't know that I have an answer. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, in terms of broad answers, there are a couple of things that I like to think about when I'm starting a project. So I have been doing a series of white papers that are based off a masterclass that I've done in the past, um, usually as uh, on-premises workshops for companies. Um, If you look up um, your game uh, as a poster on SlideShare, you'll see the deck, Um, but it's a pretty tightly defined set of creative definition exercises to make sure that you really understand what you are wanting to build. Um, And this is, you know, the sort of thing that I really encourage teams to uh, work through. And I I like working through, I like working through it with teams personally. Um, I have friends who work through it on their own, but um, by the time that you are done with that, you're going to have a pretty tight focus of what your idea is and how you can talk about it effectively and convey that concept both to, you know, kind of potential team members and sponsors, as well as to potential players. Um, And then once you have that, um, one of the things that we do on the uh, growth marketing side 
here at Mobile Game Doctor is we actually do what we call marketability studies of games, right? So we'll build landing pages and then we'll build, you know, sort of various ad creatives um, for that game concept, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we have ways of testing the raw appeal as well as the kind of general market size or scalability of the game. Um, so this is something that, you know, a number of our, our uh, customers will come to us to do um, when they kind of want to validate a new concept. Um, mm -hmm. There's some good research tools out there as well that you can use to kind of assess the market and assess the themes. But um, personally, I do love getting that quantitative data from customers, but it doesn't make sense until you have real clarity about what your game is, why it's going to be fun, and at least some first approximation of how you can tell users about that. Yeah. So that that type of marketing validation type stuff, would you do that before you build a prototype or would you be something where, hey, let's build a prototype and see if this actually feels fun before we even think about specking art and running, you know, like CPI studies and things like that on the marketing side? I mean, I think a lot of it depends on your level of confidence in the gameplay, right? So I have a production philosophy that says, look, um, there are essentially, you know, two pieces of the, pro or three pieces of the process really in games as a service, right? So you have sort of um, pre-production, production, and live operations, right? And pre-production is all about starting with a set of questions about what all of your game killing risks are, right? And depending on what your concept is, how close it is to establish gameplay patterns, right? Um, you know, is this mechanic fun, right? Maybe a risk, it may not, right? Archero with a better meta. Okay, is Archero fun? Yeah. I'm asking. Yeah, I generally thought it was quite a fun game. Is a better meta better than a worse meta? Yeah, it feels like you're actually okay. progressing, yeah. So unless you have doubts about your capability to actually execute on that thesis, right? The prototype may not be particularly important in this case. And market validation may be a more important, a higher priority first step, right? When you look at this and say, we can absolutely build this, like, uh, so I designed the Trailer Park Boys idle game for Eastside Games. Yep. Right? Um, and so now, like, uh, there are a number of more or less reskins of that out there with different IPs. Right. So there's not really a question about the core mechanics and systems of whether they're fun or whether they can monetize. Um, so really, the biggest question for any of those reskins is, is there a demand for this product? Is there a demand for this kind of gameplay with this particular license? Right. So yeah. their prototyping may be less critical than market validation. Right. That's that could be really valuable. People that are listening and thinking of making a new game, I think these are these are great steps. So if it was a entirely new gameplay that had never been done before, that might be where you try making the prototype before doing the marketing kind of a thing, right? Yeah, well, the whole pre-production thing is about eliminating risks, right? So if one of your questions is like, <clears throat> is this even a game? <laughs> Can I 
build something worth playing out of this crazy seed of an idea I have in my head. And, you know, those seeds can run, you know, really, really far and wide. You know, I, I had one friend who was like, man, I just have this, you know, vision of like, you know, kind of a, a pinball colliding with this giant glass sphere and it shattering into, you know, all of these shards, right? And that being really satisfying. And I want to figure out how to build a game around the vision of that moment, right? Um, so sometimes it starts from there. Sometimes it starts from some combination of mechanics you want to put together. Um, you know, sometimes it starts from looking at the market, um, you know, what, whatever it is, it comes from somewhere, but often, right. You know, the first question is like, is there a game here? Um, so if that's a question, you know, going out and doing market validation for something that may not be a game kind of, kind of doesn't matter what the marketability is if it's not a game. Mm. Right. Yeah. Do you use any of those uh, like third-party services like Sensor Tower, App Annie, Game Refinery for like validating an idea in this phase, or are those kind of further down the line? Um, you know, they are they are good secondary info. Um, I think Game Refinery has uh, really interesting tooling for. Um, thinking about kind of new concepts and evaluating them in terms of market stuff that's out there. So they have a nice tool for that. Although honestly, my favorite use for game refinery is when you have a game and you're starting to ask yourself, look, what should I be prioritizing next? I think they have some great helpful data there, right? Where you can sort of look at what are other proximate games and what kind of feature sets that they have and what impacts have those had. And then, you know, there is a hazard there saying, okay, well, it said do this thing, so we'll just do it, right? You have to give it some deep thought about how this is actually going to work in your game and how you're going to tailor it for your audience. <clears throat> but it's a nice jumping off point. Um, for the kind of raw market research in terms of, you know, uh, what are download velocities and revenue and so on, um, we work with a company called Data Magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's based over in Russia. They have a kind of um, app Annie service uh, that we have found, you know, provides some really, really useful data. Um, so those are the main data sources we work with in those areas. Cool. Yeah. Well, Dave, I know we're about out of time here. So I've got two more questions for you. All right. The first are we about one. out of 2020? Because I'm ready. <laughs> we're, we're getting close. We'll just have okay. to sleep a little bit longer. But um, I'm down. Because we are on the Mastering Retention podcast, I always like to ask, what's one tip or trick you found over the year to boost your retention rates? Well, that's kind of a question without, you know, uh, I think a meaningful answer. Um, in as much as, um, number one, the reasons that users retain at different depths are really, really different, right? So when you're trying to cure a problem with D1, you're dealing with really, really different questions and solutions than if you're trying to deal with D7, mm. than if you're trying to deal with D30, than if you're trying to deal with D180, Yep. right? Um, so 
I guess number one is, you know, to really say, look, retention isn't uniform. Think about where in the user journey arc you're targeting and tailor your solutions for that, mm -hmm. right? And you also need to really tailor your solutions for, you know, the population in your game, mm -hmm. right? So really understanding your players, what they like and dislike, uh, and some of that you're going to get from, you know, sort of quantitative data. And some of it you'll get from qualitative data. Um, one thing I will encourage just kind of globally is um, build your split testing capacities very early in your development cycle. <laughs> if you can't split test, it's really, really hard to get good data about what the impact of the changes that you're making in your product are. So build your split testing capability very early on, build your data reporting capability very early on, um, and be smart and thoughtful about the questions that you're asking of the data. Uh, collecting data is really easy. <laughs> Making graphs is really easy. Asking good questions about the data that lead to smart, actionable product decisions is really hard. I would agree with that. That's that's fantastic. I haven't actually heard of, you know, getting those tools right before. So I love that. Cool. Final question. If folks want to get in contact with you or your team, how should they do that? Yeah. So there's some information about us online at www.mobilegamedoctor.com. Um, and certainly if you want to reach out, uh, there's a contact form on the website. Or you can just shoot an email to uh, info at mobilegamedoctor.com, and that will get into our hands, and we will get you to uh, the right part of the org and hopefully connect and figure out what we can do to uh, help you and your, your uh, free-to-play game be successful. That's fantastic. Dave, thank you so much for our great chat today. Um, folks, if you're having any issues with your game, like definitely reach out to Mobile Game Doctor. Dave just knows so much. I haven't talked to a lot of the rest of his team, but I, I really hope that I will get to you in the future. So Dave, thanks for being on. Well, it's been a pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much you for having me. Yep. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.